So Sarah, do you remember all the way back when we recorded our 2021 New Year episode? Like 80,000 years ago? Surely that wasn't just this year. I know. What? It was either five minutes ago or five years ago. Who knows? But anyway, the original title, if you recall that episode, was New Year Be Intentional. At least that's the title I had on the Google Doc. But the title that we changed it to after recording was What Side of History Will You Be On? And to be sure, as we reflect back on this year now, we've had plenty of opportunities to take a side on events, starting with something that we still don't have a lot of clarity on, but we should all still be asking questions about what happened there, namely the January 6th insurrection, which immediately followed the January 5th historic Georgia senatorial runoff. But we could spend an entire episode and more listing all of those moments where we asked ourselves, what side of history will you be on? And to be sure, we're actually going to do that. We're going to recap those, you know, next week in our year-end episode. So be sure to listen to that one. It'll be short, but it'll be worth it. Totally. But this week, we're actually re-airing that first episode of 2021 with the themes that we thought might be important this past year, but really we had no idea just how important they were going to turn out to be. And so as you listen, we'd love for you to reflect as well on how did these themes show up in your life and in your spheres of influence and in society? What did you learn about yourself this year and about other people in your life? And I mean, you knew you were, this question is going to be coming. So you're not going to be surprised when we say, what are you going to do given what you have learned this past year? And as a side note, if you didn't have a very clear action step that popped into your mind about what you're going to be doing differently, what you already are doing differently now, or as you head into next year, 2022, go on and order yourself a copy of the book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, because it will help you come up with some ideas. Ultimately, we really hope that today you spend some time thinking about how you'll reflect on this moment in history sometime in the next two decades. What side of history did you stand on right now? Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. Where are your biracial hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha? So from the name of our podcast, Dear White Women, and from our very first episodes, you know, it's been central to our purpose here to get you listeners thinking and learning and acting along with us to create change in your own small spheres of influence. And this year is really no exception. In fact, this year might be even more important on this front. We've seen the division in our country through 2020, which was highlighted for all of us in stark relief through the election in November. And then the aftermath of the election, I mean, because as we're recording this, there's still no concession speech from Trump. There's a fair amount of this country that's still not convinced that Biden actually won the election without a massive conspiracy theory at work. And so given all this, the big question that we feel like we need to ask is how do we get past this? Families and communities, states and countries that are divided end up failing. We've seen this pattern happen throughout history and not distant history either. So ignoring it, like ignoring this division, this greater problem that we're facing, just because we're like, well, maybe I don't feel it personally, you know, maybe because we're in the dominant narrative, maybe we're white or cisgender or male or rich or able-bodied, burying our head in the sand and being like, it doesn't matter because it doesn't affect me. It is not going to work. The crumbling foundation of our country has shown itself. And if we want to survive and even thrive again, we need to find ways to be unified, 
to see the humanity in each other, to see the fundamental similarities across all of our differences and rebuild connection, understanding and respect, both in our daily lives and in greater society, because the history books are going to read very differently if we don't do that. Completely. Because we're, you know, at one of those moments in time, those flashpoints really in history, where all of this, 2020, this year and more, will be in those record books. And so again, we ask you, which side of history will you be on to all of our listeners? And will you be intentional in your choice of which side? So that's why we are devoting our first theme or arc of our podcast episodes of the new year to really answering this question, why and how should people care about others, especially if the systems seem to be in your favor, really? And in doing our research around this topic and talking to some amazingly smart thought leaders in the process, we've come up with some central themes that resonated with us. For a preview of those themes, and do not worry, we're devoting at least one episode to each theme. Listen on. <laughs> the first theme is... Anger. <laughs> so That was said really cheerfully. I know. I know. Sorry, I didn't channel that well enough. Anger. <laughs> Ooh, that's better. Okay. You know, if you felt angry in 2020, you weren't alone. I think, Sarah, you and I probably experienced anger multiple times a day. <laughs> keep it real. Thanks, kids. Thanks. Keeping it real over here. But many of us felt insecure and threatened, but that went double or exponentially more for white people, it seems. Terrence Fitzgerald, who's a clinical associate professor of social work at the University of Southern California, as well as the author of Black Males and Racism, Improving the Schooling and Life Chances of African-Americans, was on a weekend bike ride in his neighborhood with his three and five-year-old sons, so little kids, when a truck pulled up and a white woman asked him what was going on and what he was looking at. Clearly, the underlying question being like, why are you in this neighborhood? So his immediate response was anger. I, I totally get that. But he checked his tone to be a role model for his boys. He said, I simply said in the smartest ass way possible, a bird. I gave them the death stare. And the husband said, well, all right, then, as if he was giving me permission to continue on my day. He rolled up their window and drove on. This neighborhood is my neighborhood. I mean, I'm shaking my head. You can't hear it, but I picture the experiences that your husband has been through, that so many friends have been to, being made to feel like you don't belong in a public sphere just because you're brown or black. Right, right. People see color first and that trumps everything, right? So why do these encounters happen? And this professor, Fitzgerald, contends that it's really fear that's driving this. People who have historically lived in a place of privilege and safety are being told a couple of jarring things that have shaken them to their core in 2020, he said. They are not safe. There is a new social justice power pushing them to look in the mirror. They are being told that the supposed fake media and the misguided liberals are to blame for the current state of social and economic turmoil. These, in fact, are the same people, along with people of color, who are challenging their long-held beliefs of white superiority. And that's all of what Terrence Fitzgerald said. That is interesting, right? So that is fueling anger. And then you also have people who are being targeted, who are rightfully angry. And there's a whole lot of anger in our country right now. Yeah. To Aram Sinreich, and I hope I said that correctly, but he's an associate professor of communication at American University in Washington, D.C., you know, 
He says, the most interesting dimension of this is a question of who is getting angry and where over things like mask wearing. Mm. We've all seen the memes. We've all seen the social media videos. And so what he says is, let's assume that almost everyone is feeling an unusual level of anxiety with a pandemic, record unemployment, political and social instability and climate change. Yet white people in this country are less accustomed than people of color to having their public behavior subject to regulation, scrutiny, and critique. And if you're white and listening, I just want you to breathe and remember Amy Cooper in the park at Central Park at the bird watching incident right before George Floyd was publicly murdered. Okay. White people in this country are less accustomed than people of color to having their public behavior regulated. And so this associate professor says that's the purpose of whiteness after all. So the enforcement of rules like masks might be coming as more of a shock. And he also says it's easier for some Americans than others to let loose and break mandatory mask rules. And he says, because white people feel safer acting antisocially in public because there is less of a pervasive threat of injury or death as a result of it. Whereas a black person, as we've seen, can get killed for jogging or for opening their front door. So when it ties into this idea of anger, anger for people of color and in particular women of color is seen in very different lights than white anger and pretty much none of them are flattering. So let's think about it for a second. White people are suddenly feeling more angry because they're less used to being regulated in their behavior. In a large number of these cases, though, it's kind of important to point out their anger is about being righteous about their like individual and incidentally fairly insignificant desires first. You're stomping on my freedom to not wear a mask. Like when you consider what is at risk, it is a fairly insignificant point of anger. You're not being killed like people of color are. So what would our country be like if we use that anger instead to collectively stand up for each other, to be on the right side of history? What forces do we have to overcome and how do we channel our anger and what would that look like? So for this one, we're really excited to connect with Soraya Chamali, the author of Rage Becomes Her, to talk about anger. I can't wait for that. I'm already so excited, right? Okay, so that was a big first theme. Okay, ready? Second theme. Is that really annoying? Do you like the drum roll or is that really annoying? (laughs) No, it's good. At least you're not doing it with your mouth. I feel like that would be even weirder. (laughs) So, (laughs) Thanks. Theme two, let's go. Theme two, what's up with white women? And this, you know, in particular, given the name of our podcast, is really central and I can't wait to talk about this because one of the premises that many of us believe or want to believe in is that certain issues should be universal to all women. I mean, and really all humans, but in particular women, as Vogue pointed out in a 2018 article written right around the midterm elections, a right to health care, to choose what's best for our bodies, that our children should be safe at school. Those are things that in theory we should all want, but clearly It's not as simple as just wanting those things. We've seen in 2016, in 2018, and most recently, you know, a couple months ago, that some women identify more strongly as Southerners, as Christians, as GOP members, as white people than they do women. And they vote accordingly, even if and when that vote negatively impacts not only them, let's say voting against equal pay, and their families, like voting against paid leave or affordable childcare, but women in poverty, women of color, and queer women. Those same women who showed up in droves with pink pussy hats at the start of 2017 may have still voted against what in theory was their own self-interest in 2020. 
Yet, at the same time, these women, white women, make up a huge voting block in this country. We heard in 2016 and 2018 that white women made up about 37% of the electorate, which is more than all Black, Latinx, and other voters of color combined. And in other words, this group has serious political power and a lot of it. So there have been women out there, including Jenna Arnold, who we interviewed for this arc and can't wait for you all to hear our conversation with her because we touched on not only the pink pussy hats, but so many of these issues who have gotten out, these women, and have been holding focus groups with white women across this country. Another woman named Jackie Payne, who founded Galvanize, which is an organization specifically designed to reach out to white women to get them to see, in her words, that our fates are linked, noticed something specific about the women they talked to. She says, the women we're talking to aren't saying, we don't care about other folks. On the contrary, some say, all my husband cares about is how policy connects to him and his wallet, but I'm different. I care about people. But she goes on to say the answer, that answer isn't a simple one because there's a systemic underlying problem of women voters having less information and living with close ties to conservative men in very red states. She notes white women in rural, small town and suburban America are connected to and surrounded by more conservative white men, fathers, husbands, pastors, uncles, brothers, who they are inclined to vote in tandem with, especially when those same men often control the clicker, which and you know is means that their TV is often tuned to Fox News. And women who are busy doing the vast majority of domestic labor, as we particularly saw in 2020, I think, tune out and end up with a lack of information about politics. That's so interesting, right? Yeah. So intentions may be there, but there are other forces at play. And a common thread among the white women that she has met is that they feel isolated by politics. You know, some people privately support gun reform, for example, but believe that they're alone in that, either because women in their social circles don't dive into political conversations or because they don't want to break from what is the status quo in their community because they might strain their marriage or lead to divorce or jeopardize friendships or even risk retribution. I mean, those are really very real concerns. You know, one woman whose family owns an auto body shop told Payne that she was scared that customers, many who drive in with conservative radio pouring out from their speakers, would shun their business if they found out that she was merely a moderate. Payne says they are swimming in the deep end of white male patriarchy. Now, that's not to say we can blame everything on the patriarchy. Your point to that is the sole driving factor here. I mean, white women, after all, were relentless in their daily effort to make sure that the color line stayed in place through segregation and slavery in the South through fighting for suffrage for white women, because remember, women of color couldn't vote until the Voting Rights Act. And those are just a couple of examples. But part of the problem is that we've been told we don't talk politics in white female circles, even among those women who secretly feel much more progressive than their male family members do. So even if their gut doesn't feel right, Payne is saying these women aren't talking to one another about what feels wrong. Their perception is that they're alone and it reinforces the thinking that, well, I must be wrong. Finding others who believe the same as they do, the solidarity and the power of reinforcement is huge. Oh, so important. So here's the problem we see. You know, after Barack Obama was elected, do you remember, like some people tried to say, well, we're in a post-racial world. Yes, I remember. Right? Yes. Then what happened? Then 2020 happened. I mean, George, I mean, it's a lot in between too, but George Floyd was murdered. There was a huge reckoning and a backlash 
you know, there was a Trump election, right? Also. So what's the next backlash that we might expect to see? I mean, if you think that there was a lot of race conversation after a black president was elected, who's the new VP? Kamala Harris. She was elected. And so we're probably going to hear like, well, feminism. But then absolutely. What do you think is going to happen? I think there's going to be a huge backlash against women in power. It's coming. So do you want to be caught flat-footed or do you want to be prepared for it? Do you want, especially if you're a woman listening or you love a woman and you feel that women can be empowered to make their own decisions in their life about anything, we have to be thinking about this and tap into the power of women. So in the end, as Payne noted back in 2018, it comes back to this solidarity. We need a larger share of white women standing up for progress for everybody. Because if we don't or we can't see past ourselves in our own individual situation, what side of history will that put us on? I spent that entire last like two minutes of you talking, just nodding my head vigorously, like just full on agreement. So I can't wait to dive into this. Ladies, we've got to put the fire. Yeah. You know, yeah, we can't wait. Yeah. This is exciting. All right. Theme three. Was that the mouth one that you didn't want to hear? <laughs> yes, that was. Thanks. <laughs> you know what? It's conspiracy theories. So who does not love a good conspiracy theory, except when they are hugely harmful and damaging to society as a whole? Yeah, maybe not then. Yeah. You know, but anyway, we do listen to other podcasts. In particular, I listen to a lot of other podcasts that maybe are not just about true crime. I would like to asterisk that for 2020. But we just listened to one of the best podcast episodes I've heard in a while from the show called You're Wrong About. And the title of the episode was Losing Relatives to Fox News. And the air date of that episode was December 7th of 2020, if you want to look it up for yourself. Conspiracy theories have been a hallmark of 2020. You know, I think it's impossible to have been alive in 2020 and not have heard them surrounding everything, right? And that intensifies the more time you personally spend reading the news or in particular, if you're on social media. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that podcast episode that I just mentioned really dug deep into things like there are weird things that our minds do when we see news that isn't real. For example, the illusory truth effect. So if you see a statement once that says the Pope endorses Donald Trump for president, you might brush that statement aside or logic might kick in because you might be like, yo, the Pope doesn't actually endorse political candidates, let alone those in another country. But let's say you see that six, seven times on social media, you know, in a day. And suddenly this effect states that we start to believe things when we are fed them more often, which is fascinating, like that our mind can go there. It's like everything that's gone wrong with, you know, when you sell a product, people always say you have to hear the product's name or the business's name seven times before you actually start remembering that. I mean, it's like that effect, it feels like. Yes. Hear it often enough, you think it's true. Yes. Well, and this one was my like jaw dropping, amazing thing. So in the same episode, they were talking about the windmill experiment. And it's been scientifically proven through this study that when you put the phrase windmills were invented in Persia on an image of a windmill, people tend to believe that statement to be true more than if the same statement was just on a black background. And that doesn't even have to be those words on an image of a windmill actually in Persia, but people still believe that to be true because words that are on a slightly related photo to what those words are about is more convincing than words on a black background, which is, again, 
it's fascinating and it's making me go like, all right, so I need to change our Instagram feed a little bit. I'll make different memes, but it is fascinating. It reminds me of like subliminal advertising and the stuff that we would learn in high school about. But anyway, I think maybe I need to become like a video editor or like a graphic designer so I can like insert subconscious prompts into the things that we make. I mean, I don't know. This is fascinating. Isn't it? Anyway, I mean, this is how politics can manipulate social media. You know, or is it the social media algorithm that's actually manipulating us? We talked about that show, The Social Dilemma, which also dives into that conversation. But, you know, both groups can capitalize on these claims to antagonize certain groups and create community and convert people into loyal voters and supporters and believers. One of the articles that we looked at for this episode told us that, unsurprisingly, research shows that people buy into conspiracy theories when times are stressful and uncertain. Anybody had a stressful and uncertain year recently? (laughs) I'm not sure. It sounds a little unfamiliar, but go on. Right, maybe. In these situations, people tend to make less accurate judgments about the validity of the information they're given. At the same time, believing in conspiracy theories also makes people feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves, and it provides them with this tribe to belong to. And how many times have I said, we need community, relationships are important for our happiness. It's how we're wired as human beings. And so we really want to have this conversation talking not just about, you know, addressing it, you know, I guess about what makes it happen, but how do you address it? You know, the answer, it could be through critical thinking, maybe through building communities so that people aren't looking for them through conspiracy theories, maybe a combination of both. But that podcast episode, which I'm so glad you recommended it to me, I mean, it theorized that we needed to really shut social media off in order to truly stem the flow of information and also certain news sources as well. But is that even possible? I mean, how do you talk to your relatives about this? And how do you talk to your friends about this? And how does what you believe and how you choose to address those beliefs put you on one side of history or the other? I'm so psyched that we get to chat with Professor Karen Douglas, who's an expert on conspiracy theories, to get more insight on all of this. And our final theme, I'll do the drum roll for you. Do it. Wait, did you just hit it twice? Oh my gosh. That was like the lamest drum roll. Do it, again. it is. <laughs> Yay. Empathy. That was a really mean thing for me to say leading into this segment on empathy. I know, dude. Like your empathetic, your non-empathetic response to my drum roll. Okay. Not a great way to kick off this section, but we'll be better. Okay. I'm sorry. I'll be nice. I can feel you. <laughs> right, I'm done. If you haven't heard the name Kenneth B. Clark, you're probably not alone, but it is a name you should know. Clark was a professor of psychology at City College of New York, and he documented in a series of studies that Black children preferred to play with white dolls rather than Black ones. And this was back in 1939. And I definitely cited that study in the book that we have coming out in the section that I wrote, actually. But in 1954, Clark compiled a mountain of social scientific data that implicated segregated schools in Black students' psychological distress. And that was crucial evidence that was cited in the Brown v. Board of Education decision to desegregate schools. Clark's analysis of the destructive psychology of white prejudice drew on the work of psychoanalyst Alfred Adler to show that white supremacy helped to mask deeper feelings of social inferiority among white Americans. As they struggled with their own failures and inadequacies, a belief in racial superiority boosted their egos. And anybody listening to this who might feel this way is probably like, ew, no, I don't have an ego problem. But just think that it was a study that was done and it may not be about you, but like we need to be just hearing this right now without the defenses going up about it. So 
The flaw, I guess is what they put it, in the white psyche was so prevalent that 30 years later, Clark explained in an article in Ebony magazine that if Black people were to indeed obtain equal rights, it would be a, quote, psychological calamity for the average American white. White people would then have to find other scapegoats or face again the intolerable state of their own emptiness. I mean, it sounds so harsh, right? I'm picturing my dad looking at me, my white dad being like, are you serious right now? But this is what they studied. And let's just revisit a little bit again about the righteous white anger about masks. Does that explain a little bit? Is there something else going on? Is there something, you know, we haven't as a society placed as much weight as I would like to see on psychology and human nature when it comes to these sorts of things in society in general, let alone when it comes to race relationships. And so say you can hear that for example, without getting defensive, it's really interesting to consider that that might be going on. I think that's so true because what Clark and others also pointed out and noticed is that even those white liberals who genuinely promoted and supported racial equality weren't immune to this way of thinking. They felt guilty. I think we've heard this refrain again a lot of times and not sure where their loyalties were even while being sort of complicit by virtue of living in our society, which is a white supremacist society. So as a result, in the civil rights era, liberals weren't able to really wholeheartedly support this movement because they couldn't understand Black people's motivations. They didn't and couldn't really, through their own choice, see Black people as their equals, even though they were advocating for legal equality. You know, it makes me think of that nice white parent's podcast episode where they were talking about schools and, you know, desegregating schools and having equal opportunity in schools, but I'm not going to send my kids to those schools, right? The white parents were saying, you know, I want them to have great opportunities. I want there to be better education options. I'm just not willing to have my kids go there. So I think that, you know, if we really think about this as awkward or as unsettling as those statements that I just said are, if you think about in your daily life, in your spheres that you move in, in your social circles, you may see examples of this to right now. So what's the reason behind this? What's the why? And, you know, as Clark theorized, they lacked empathy, right? White people, but in particular, these white liberals who were advocating for legal equality and couldn't really see Black people as equal. Clark held empathy to be something quite different from sentimentality or pity, which really comes from a position of superiority, right? When you're looking down on someone and you pity them, right? Empathy, in contrast, acknowledges the underlying similarity of the human condition, like that we are all human, that we all have these similar characteristics and traits, and thus creates a foundation of mutual respect, that really can bridge racial lines. And just to interrupt for a second, I mean, I think that what you just said is so critical because, you know, all of the things that you see before are these intellectual, you know, they should have legal rights out there, but this empathy is this internal work. And it goes from like this idea of there's always a winner and a loser. There's this hierarchy. There's, you know, that ranking system. And then this idea of empathy blows that out of the water and sort of all I picture is this sense of like a circle and a hug and we're in it together. We're on the same playing field and it's not this 
external race for, you know, what we've talked about before of success and money and winning and this winner loser mentality. It's about humanity and being present in our bodies and like loving one another. Yeah. And, you know, I think that the tricky part about empathy is that in order to truly be empathetic, you have to do a lot of rigorous self-examination and work on yourself. Right. And and what Clark said about this is that any genuine relationship between black people and white people must face honestly all of the ambivalences both feel for each other. Each must identify with the other without sentiment. So white people in general had to abandon, you know, any fantasy of superiority or aristocracy and white liberals had to dispense with the idea that they themselves were free of prejudice. So his challenge to white liberals was really to let down their defenses and to engage in honest conversation, to get past them just saying like black people and white people should be equal to actually seeing black people as their equals and really address and face head on the fact that their own privileged status may be threatened as a result. So conversations couldn't just sit in discomfort and defense and guilt, which if you've you know heard these emotions recently been sort of labeled as white fragility, right? That defensive response to challenges to this systemic racist society that we have. So Clark knew that empathy alone could not destroy institutional racism, but He believed that if someone could really understand others, like really truly see the humanity in others, that person would be able to give those other people the same rights and privileges that they themselves had. So for him, empathetic reason, which was his term for it, was more than just a feeling, right? It wasn't just an emotion. It was a political intervention. I love this because I think without even knowing this depth of Clark's opinion, intuitively, it's something that you and I have done here on the show where we want to highlight narratives of people who are underrepresented. And if our listeners can be flies on the wall so that it's not just you and me being able to have these conversations with incredible people out there, but like we can bring this to more people so that they can also challenge their own boundaries and maybe develop a little bit more of this empathic reasoning and understand someone's humanity and perspective. You know, I love this to me. I'm like, awesome. Mm. Thanks, Clark. Yes. (laughs) So since Clark's time, though, empathy has been studied extensively by social and cognitive psychologists and philosophers and neuroscientists, but it's still sort of being studied. It's still up for debate. I mean, critics today call empathy a really narrow emotional response extended only to people who are similar to us. For Clark, that was merely a parochial empathy, which diminished what like true empathy could be. What he wanted was people to transcend the barriers of their own minds and listen with their hearts. You know, I love that. Listening (laughs) with your heart. It is such a simple and yet powerful phrase. You know, some people might say it involves a lot of work on the listener's part. I mean, it starts with setting your ego aside and really just listening to what the other person's truth is. You know, that might be what we've been told or we repeat to ourselves as an excuse is that this idea of listening, active listening, listening with your heart, developing empathy is just so hard. But once you put in the work to really understand yourself and you truly intentionally shift gears to living this way, Listening with your heart, living with empathy can enhance your quality of life in ways that are immeasurable. You think about marriages, you think about parenting, you think about your own relationship with your parents. I mean, every 
interaction you have with the people in your life who are both similar and dissimilar to you can be improved if you practice empathy. And so we have someone to interview on this front who, as a survivor of the Holocaust, understands all too well the power of history and has spent years studying and talking about what it takes for someone to stand up and speak out for others. Can't wait. I'm sure you've heard throughout this episode the excitement in our voices. I mean, we're sneak previewing these topics, but we have like so much to talk about and we can't wait to get started. If you only listen to several of our podcast episodes this year, or if you only recommend a few to other people, these are the ones. Listen and share. As you've heard throughout this episode, we have this question, this challenge for you. It's time to decide what side of history you'll be on and who you will stand up for. So it's time to pull up. Let's get to work. You're still here learning how to uproot systemic racism one conversation at a time. Our fresh news, we have a brand new book that's available for pre-order. So find us on bookshop.org at Dear White Women and order. And then make sure you follow the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts so you can keep getting the newest episodes each Wednesday. And don't forget to rate and review us as you share our show with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and Twitter at DWW Podcast. And if you love us, support our Patreon or look for ways you can bring us into your place of employment or circle of influence for a talk or ask us about our webinars and consulting work. Thanks for being here. <laughs>